Sasrod is a show about Bigfoot. It's recorded for the skeptics, the believers, the knowers, the hopers, and those who just have a casual interest in the subject. For more information, visit our Facebook page. This is Sasswood, a show about Bigfoot. I am one of your hosts, Mark Matsky, and as usual, I'm joined by my son, the co-host of Sasswood, and all-around good guy, Andy Matsky. I just have to say I love our intro music. Why do you say that? It's I... just so good. I love how it's like, it's like the <laughs> guitar, it's perfect Sasswood, just gets you in the mood. That goes back to some of the original music Seth used. Yeah, what for the bumpers? And it's it morphed over time, but there was there was some guitar music that I think migrated from ancillary yeah. characters over mm-hmm. to Sasquatch for a while. So in a way, it's a homage to the early days of Sasquatch. I'm glad you like it. It is sort of your style, sort of the acoustic. <laughs> The Madman theme, right? Madman theme? Madman. 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 The new spin-off reboot. that's a manga, actually. Uh, the spin-off reboot series coming in 2023. So what's up in your um, world? The Sasquat meetup has been what's up. Um, up, 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 up. And away. And so, got, um, yeah. So, <laughs> we just recently... And by recently, I mean like two, three weeks, um, took place in the Sasquatch meetup. These this great podcast, Sasquatch, could go and meet the guys. Real nice guys. Um, this actually was a great time, and we had we had a blast. Uh, Seth Reedlove, the original host of Sasquatch. I almost said Small Town Monsters. The original host of Small Town Monsters. <laughs> He's moved on to other things. <laughs> um was there, and a bunch of other podcasters, and a lot of great people. It was fun, and I think, now that I reflect on that evening, do you remember towards the end, our server kind of asked, yeah. what are all you people doing here? And we had to describe to her that <laughs> we were gathered because of a Bigfoot podcast, and she was, I think... Terrified. Yeah, maybe terrified at or maybe at least legitimately um, very curious about that. And, you know, she we started talking, had a pretty interesting conversation because she kind of led with, is Bigfoot real? And that's quite a way to start any conversation with someone. Uh, but she, she was uh, tolerant, I think, of the fact that we were talking about the reality of uh, undiscovered primate what's it walking through the North American forest, and especially right there in CVNP. So that was fun. And also fun was the fact, I guess, that uh, due to a downpour during the dinner portion of the festivities, we scrapped the hike and ended up walking into country-made ice cream, which is near the now defunct and non-existent Richfield Coliseum. And that's a place that we've gone a handful of times for various reasons and um, some the Coliseum having to do or with the country made country made yeah the non-existent 
Coliseum. Has the, was the Coliseum, side note, Cleveland history, was the Coliseum even around when I was alive? When no, was it? it was gone by the time you showed up. In the vague time when I was born <laughs> yeah. in 2003. Yeah, and a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but many people that I talked to say that the Richfield Coliseum was kind of a superior venue to the queue, just a, a nicer place altogether. And the miracle at Richfield, which was a part of Cavs history, took place. Your mother saw a couple concerts at the Coliseum. Uh, we'll let's just leave it at that, and uh, say thank you to all those who came to the Sasquatch meetup. It was a lot of fun, and it was fun to talk podcasting with the people who showed up. It was cool. Something else has happened relatively recently and involving uh, Mr. Breedlove, the aforementioned. And that is that just two days ago, we traveled to Wadsworth to see the uh, STM crew premiere of Invasion on Chestnut Ridge. And we also recorded our behind-the-scenes interviews. And Andy's giving a little bit of a reaction already. Is there anything that you'd like to say in regard to the next Small Town Monsters feature film? Turn down your speakers. Holy cow! It's great. I love it. We'll, I'm sure we'll geek out all the live long day on another episode once it's released. But oh my goodness, is it good. I mean, there's if you're worried that Invasion on Chestnut Ridge will ruin your love of small town monsters because they're doing all these hokey recreations... Don't be scared. And this movie, Small Town Monsters, proves that they can do recreations. And I am completely saying this in, like, third-person vague, like we have nothing to do with it, but it, it really is good. I would be completely honest if it was terrible, and it's it's really good. And it's also, I mean, I could just go into a full review right now, but I won't. Yeah, I think it's a little too early for that, but I will just say... Um... I'm not even going to review it or anything. It was just remarkable. It's a remarkable evening and very much looking forward to the premiere that's taking place at Creature Weekend and then the following weekend, the uh, screening at the Canton Palace Theater along with Mothman of Point Pleasant is really going to be an, a, a truly unforgettable event for us. So I just cannot wait for those things to transpire. And you can already get tickets for the Canton um, Canton Palace Theater screening. Um, Google Canton Palace Theater. You can get tickets right now. There were folks on Facebook proudly displaying their tickets already. already. Yes, yes. I, that was shocking to me, but very cool. It's two months from now. I know. What a bunch of nerds! No, 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 no. Those people, thank you so much. Two months. That's that's commitment to STM. It's that's amazing to to hear really breathtaking makes you wonder what we're really doing all right and just one more news item that i would like to share and this comes from the big sky bigfoot conference getting excited we're now one month out from another fabulous big sky bigfoot conference september 22 and 23 2017 at the bitterroot river inn in hamilton montana tickets are available now at BigSkyBigFootConference.com. Join us as we commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Patterson-Gimlin film. 
Presenters include Dr. Jeff Meldrum, Seth Breedlove, Becky Cook, Joe Hauser, Mark Merzell, Tom Broadhead, Thomas Ertz, Misty Alibaugh, and of course, Mr. Bob Gimlin himself. All conference proceeds benefit our friend and Big Sky Bigfoot 16 guest, Tom Yamarone. A couple of reminders, we are hosting a special one-time screening of the Small Town Monsters documentary, Boggy Creek Monster, at the Roxy Theater in Missoula, Montana, at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, September 21st. Director Seth Breedlove will be there to answer all your questions. This is going to be a blast, and I hope you all can make it. Info is available on our homepage, the aforementioned Big Sky Bigfoot Conference.com. Uh, deadline for sponsorship is approaching fast. Uh, if you can, please contact the organizer by Wednesday, September, September 6th. This is cool. We'll have a booth at the Rivoli County Fair in Hamilton, Montana, August 30th through September 2nd. Come see us when you're at the fair. We'll have displays, casting demonstrations, and goodies to give away. We'll be hosting a Bigfoot calling contest on the KLYQ free stage at the fairgrounds on Saturday, September 2nd at 4 p.m. Give us your best whoop for a chance to win tickets to Big Sky Bigfoot. And... That's about it. See you next month. And that's from the event organizer, Sarah. So that's one of those things that is definitely, if I had a bucket list, which I always say I don't, but if I had one, if you did. the Big Sky Bigfoot Conference would be near the top of that, just because that's an area of the country I've never been to. Closest that I've gotten out in that direction is um, Minnesota. But I want to see Montana, I want to see Glacier National Park, all that stuff. And that would be the perfect combo uh, in which to do that. Now, what also was brought to mind as I read through some of those dates is a week from today, as we are recording this, we will be in the thick of the International Cryptozoology Conference in Portland, Maine, hosted by Lauren Coleman and the International Cryptozoology Museum. How are we going to sleep between now and Friday when we leave for our destination in Freeport? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, it's so hard to describe how I'm how I'm feeling right now. It's like when we first when this when we first learned we were gonna do this, it was so far in the future. Like what was that? It was like February? I wanna say it was like February. So a long time till September. So it was always a long time away. And now we're a week away. Now as a reminder Andy's going to be part of a young cryptozoologist panel, which I think at this point there's four or five young people on the panel, and I imagine they're each going to be talking about how they got interested, what they do now, and what contributions you know they're making to the field, and, and all of them are. <laughs> what am I doing, really? <laughs> contributions to cryptozoology in general. I made like a few people laugh at this one right. thing. You've bought a lot of stuff from vendors. I've bought way too much stuff from vendors. <laughs> You've contributed in that way. I mean, about the crypto economy. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, that's the way I feel too. I mean, 
being asked to MC this event and introduce people. Yeah, you're, you're MCing it. You haven't yes. said that yet. I guess I haven't. I'm MCing the ICC, and I'll be interest, introducing people like Linda Godfrey, Craig Woolheater, and many, many more. And it just mind-boggling is pretty much the best way I can describe um, going into this what my mind state is like. Mm. Extremely excited. And you know what, too? Just just the portion of going to Portland and going to the museum would be enough to be, you know, like giggling fiendishly at every remembrance of this. But then to know that we'll be, you know, hearing all these great presentations and interacting with these folks. I'm hopeful that we can pull a few people aside for a quick uh, interview, but I don't know. I th- the day I think is so action packed. We'll just it'll have to be a game time decision as far as getting audio at the uh, cryptozoology conference. But we'll do our best, and for sure we'll be bringing back a lot of pictures to share on the Facebook page and so forth. So think of us over Labor Day weekend, and if you're in the New England area, please come out. Uh, it's an extremely um, well-rounded group of presenters that are going to be there. And um, just, you know, super excited, as you could imagine. Um, it's it's just more dreamlike at this point than real. It's me. more like, ah, <laughs> inside your head whenever you right. think about it. It's yes. Like, we're a week away. I need to start thinking about packing. Ah. <laughs> you know, in about a week, about eight days, it will be, we'll be in meh. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, I think that's about all of the scheduling and news items to share. (laughs) And as Andy freaks out, I think we'll transition into really the bulk of the rest of the episode, which is the listener response to our previous episode. In that episode, we covered, um, well, I I basically reread a hunk, a chunk, a of, hunk, uh, a hunk, a chunk <laughs> of Dr. Jarrett Ruminski's article called "Man Made," which was a skeptical viewpoint on all things Bigfoot. And the decision to do that was really based on a couple things. One is that uh, Jarrett is a listener to Sasquatch, and he kindly got in touch with us and really communicated to us a love for Bigfoot and the folklore surrounding it. And I felt that it was. Um, an important thing to do is to let his voice be heard, and I'll have more response on that in a little bit. But um, I knew that by presenting this article on the show, it was potentially kind of a provocative thing. And it, judging by the volume of the response, I think provocative is pretty much the right word to choose. It resulted in a lot more letters than we typically get for any single episode. And for the most part, I mean, they were very balanced, level-headed, even uh, uh, type of responses. Really what I expected there to be and was surprised there weren't more, um, kind of more upset in tone. But So we're going to share those letters tonight and comment on them, of course. And then there's some other things that we're going to do, too, as we take the episode out. But um, I don't know, Andy, after we got done with that episode... And you thought a little bit more, maybe, about the skeptical viewpoint. Was there anything that stuck in your head or that you 
maybe wanted to talk about and we didn't get to it? Anything well, like that? Well, the thing that people need to realize is we say this every episode of Sasquatch, and I am almost positive I now said this in the latest episode, but we are for the skeptics, too. I think if people are like, I can't believe they did this, I mean, we say it every episode. We do this intentionally, and I think with anything, you need to be skeptical. In like, especially in this field, you need to, you can't go, oh yeah, everything's real. So I think a skeptical viewpoint needs to be there. And I'm glad we have that on our show's catalog now. All right. So let's, well said, by the way, well said. So let's see what you have to say. Uh, This letter is from our listener, Bob. And the subject matter is Dr. Jared Ruminski. Hello, Mark and Andy. I really enjoy listening to your show and wanted to comment on Dr. Ruminski's letter to you. First of all, I realized that while I listened to Mark read from Dr. Ruminski's paper, that Dr. Ruminski sounded just like the type of person who Rene DeHinden was talking about when he said that these so-called educated people think they know everything. Dr. Ruminski talks as if he knows for sure there is no Bigfoot. We know that it is pretty much impossible to disprove the existence of anything because we would have to have all knowledge of everything there is to know in order to make that claim. Yet, Dr. Ruminski seems to make this claim without many of his statements from that letter. Just thought I would point that out. I would bet that Dr. Ruminski believes in Darwinian evolution, though even though there is very little evidence to prove that theory, yes, folks, it is just a theory and not known fact. I do agree with some of the things in which he mentions, but he fails to back up so many points with his own proofs against what he is speaking. For example, he only brings up one set of tracks from the Jerry Crew case and calls them fake. And as Mark mentioned, all the prints throughout the world were not likely created by one single hoaxer. He also fails to mention that many tracks from the fairly long past have dermal ridges in them, which are likened to fingerprints. Dr. Meldrum has several cast prints with dermal ridges dating back to the 1950s and on to the present. This alone is great evidence because it's very doubtful that someone would have thought of including these features into fake footprints, especially from that time period, especially in the remote places that many of the prints were found let alone the amount of weight it would have needed to create some of these prints or the length of the strides. How do you make footprints that are sometimes six feet in length that go through heavy brush and low tree limbs? I think you meant six foot stride. But anyway, a person would need stilts to make the strides that are seen and recorded. How do the stilts get through the heavy brush and low tree limbs, etc.? Then there's the Bossberg cripple print with its unusual shape, which is not likely faked unless it was faked by someone who knew bipedal anatomy. Yes, there's also pictures and film of supposed Sasquatches. There's the Patty film. There's a few others that are extremely compelling and pretty clear. Of course, people complain when the photo is too unfocused. Then there are others that state that the picture is too clear to be real. Not possible to please everyone, I guess. There's plenty of evidence that cannot be refuted at this time. Dr. Ruminski is also basically stating that Dr. Meldrum, Dr. Bindernagel, and Dr. Grover Krantz are fools and do not have any idea what they're doing. Dr. Ruminski must be smarter than any and all of them, LOL. How insulting for him to attempt to dismantle their reputations or their work. He then ridicules the whole Bigfoot community as non-scientists that shouldn't be studying anything. Honestly, if more scientists would get involved, there would be more answers in progress. It is due to the lack of mainstream science's involvement. There are so many lay people trying to do the job of mainstream scientists. Sorry for rambling, but I thought that my thoughts might be helpful. All for now. God bless. Keep up the great work. Bob. And towards the end of that letter, I mean, Bob, you raise an important point, and that is that at least in 
reference to John Green, that was his stated goal all throughout his collection of reports and all the works that he wrote was to get mainstream science's attention. And I think that's that has happened to a certain degree. And with the involvement of Dr. Meldrum and some of the other scientists that are mentioned, especially Dr. Jeff Meldrum, is that to a very small degree, science has taken notice. Now, an article that we will turn to at the end of today's episode gets into the pressures that are faced by scientists who have a legitimate interest, just an interest, in Bigfoot and what they are up against in terms of the institution and the system. And it's very illuminating, I think. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, get into that later on. I don't remember in the article him ever offering an opinion. Did he? Who? Dr. Ruminski? Dr. Ruminski? I don't remember oh, ever sure. I mean, that opinion. The whole, the whole episode, or the whole <laughs> episode, the whole article is written from the bias that Bigfoot does not exist. It begins from that presumption. So in a sense, you could say that that's opinion. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So. I think, I don't know. Never mind. Okay. I don't, I thought he almost, in my, this is me remembering the article. Me, I'm remembering it. But he almost compliments the fact it's made up of all, or he like, he yeah, points it, out the flaws that it's all, non-scientific people, but he points out how it, the group has come together to find this. Yeah, it's not necessarily knocking the fact that it's amateur researchers. Mm -hmm. That's all there is. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, that, I think that's part of that's mm -hmm. part of the message here is um, that it's never a bad thing to have amateurs. Today, unfortunately, there is a bias just throughout our society that Unless you're a professional in a given field, then you have no right to state your opinion yeah. or to give, you know, why are you researching if you're not a professional? But amateurs have made a lot of important discoveries in all fields. In science, period, mm -hmm. there's a lot of amateurs that have discovered everything. Yeah. So thanks, Bob, for writing. I think probably your reaction was similar to the majority of our listeners. I, I just would take a wild stab at that. Uh, although, um, here's our next letter. This is from a long-time listener and good friend of the show, Tom. Tom writes, Hi guys, I just listened to your latest episode and felt compelled to comment. I'd like to know if any of the so-called skeptics of Bigfoot have ever spent any time at all actually investigating the subject in the field. They all seem to do exactly what the doctor criticized others of researching on the internet. I tend to think that if trained experts and scientists like Dr. Meldrum, Bindernagel, Fingerprint expert Jimmy Chilcutt, the late Dr. Grover Krantz, who have actually examined the evidence firsthand, come to the conclusion that something real, whether it be man or beast, made footprints, left scat and hairs that have been tested and come back, no known species, then how can he not come to the conclusion that most of us have that there is something out there? As you said, Mark, he made no mention of the eyewitnesses in their sightings. Yes, people have probably misidentified bears as Sasquatch, but I hold in high esteem and believe it when a police officer or park ranger reports a sighting, day or night. You have to stop and think for a moment that they know what they're talking about and what they saw. A park ranger would know the difference between a bear and anything else. 
A policeman would know the difference between a man in a coat and a Sasquatch, which just ran across the road in three steps right in front of their patrol car and into the woods. They saw something, and it wasn't a hoax or a misidentified animal. When people tell you their lives were changed, or when you see or listen to people begin to break down when they recount their stories, they have seen something and not a normal creature. It's fine to be skeptical, but be open-minded to a subject you have only read articles, books, or watched YouTube videos on. Go out into the woods, get involved with the research group, review their evidence firsthand, and listen to the sighting reports before you just come out and say, there can't be such a creature, it goes against all I believe in. Get the facts firsthand, weigh the evidence, and then see if you're still skeptical, or maybe, just maybe, your mind is opened enough to accept the fact that just something might be out there. You don't know what it is, and we don't know either, but we do think it's just possible by all the evidence that something is out there. Thanks for letting me vent, but I get tired of people who have given no time to actually pursue the subject, write it off as a hoax or misidentification. Enjoy each and every episode, Tom. Yeah, again, I mean, what Tom brings up there is beginning from the presumption that Bigfoot does not exist. And most of the academic and the folkloric scholarly work that I've seen does, in fact, come, you know, it begins at that point. It's uh, just kind of taken as a given that Bigfoot doesn't exist, he can't exist, so then everything else around it is somehow bunk. And um, so you're going to, you know, you're going to structure your whole argument based around that. I think that's that's an interesting prescription that Tom gives, which is to get out into the field, to talk to people personally who are doing this sort of information gathering before drawing any conclusions. And um, you know, I like the fact that uh, Tom feels free to write in, and, and uh, he's been somebody who's always supported the program. So, Tom, thanks a lot for writing in. Now, next letter is from Ron. And the subject line is, well, you asked. I don't really like to write complaining email, but you did ask us to write about the recent episode where some professor sent you a lengthy diatribe describing how Sasquatch couldn't possibly exist and that the people who believed it were deluded and basically wasting their time and had been for decades looking for such a creature. Obviously, from my opening too long sentence, I didn't think much of this man's paper. I frankly don't remember this person's name, and I'm not bothered by that at all. I view him as another science-knows-everything-there-is-to-know armchair quote-unquote expert on all things wild and on human psychology. I would question whether this person has ever been in the woods or whether he just read about it and now knows all. A couple of things really bothered me about it. First, that you would spend an entire episode on something that basically insulted a large part of your audience. I started to turn it off several times, but didn't, since I'm a loyal listener and kept waiting on strong disagreement from you, too. That never really came. You have so much more to talk about, things like Sasquatch Nation, reports, experiences, etc. Your listeners, I think, listen to enjoy their belief, or at least curiosity about Sasquatch, not to be insulted by some nameless professor in an ivory tower somewhere. Second, the letter basically assassinated the character of Grover Krantz and pretty much called John Green and Rene DeHinden charlatans and fools, and you let that slide. Particularly after the rant he made about Krantz, I expected some reaction from you, but you were silent. You mentioned revisiting the letter at a future time. I sincerely hope that is not the case. 
Well, Ron, there's really a couple things that I would say in response to that. First of all, um, thank you for being a loyal listener. Secondly, as such, then you know that our show open starts by saying that this program is reported for the skeptics. And this was a skeptical viewpoint. And we stated that from the beginning. And as Andy said very well a little bit, a little while ago, skeptical viewpoints do deserve to have an audience. And the author of the article, Dr. Jarrett Ruminski, also is a listener to the show. And in corresponding with him, I did not find him to be at all looking down his nose at us. In fact, he seems to be uh, highly enjoy the entire topic. You have to recall, he's writing for a magazine called The Skeptic. So he's not fashioning an article to uphold the possibility that Bigfoot exists. So that's that. Another thing that I want to mention, too, is that um, you know, I understand what you're saying about no response regarding the um, the way that, let's say, you know, DeHinden or Krantz were described. I guess I think that the Sasquatch listeners are smart enough to recognize an ad hominem attack when they hear it. Ad hominem, of course, meaning against the man. That's typical in politics. That's typical in any argument where you go against the person. You try to impugn their character, thereby making the rest of their argument seem weaker. You know, And that's all politics is anymore, it seems to me, is going after the person rather than the issue. So I figured that you know, an attack on Grover Krantz's ego and his apparent egotism didn't really necessitate a, a strong reaction on my part. Um, yeah, I mean, here's the deal. I think it's... Um, if you're really interested in the subject, then you have to hold open as a possibility that Roger Patterson had a huckster's mentality. There's a lot of strange coincidences with Roger Patterson and getting that film. You also have to hold open the possibility that maybe Grover Krantz did have an oversized ego, or at the very least was eccentric. That doesn't invalidate what happened. I mean, at the same time, you have to hold open the possibility that Roger Patterson was trying to make money off of the Bigfoot phenomenon, and he got a legitimate film. That, too, is a possibility. And Grover Krantz could have been, you know, hard to get along for anyone to get along with, and he still could have done good work. So, all that is to say, I, you know, it was absolutely an editorial decision on my part not to stop the show at that point and point out the fact that these are ad hominem attacks against um, various Bigfoot figures because I figured that that's a fairly typical standard practice that people would know. Um, ultimately, I think where I did offer an opposing viewpoint is in what I think was the most glaring 
omission in the entire article, which was no commentary whatsoever on eyewitness reports. And I'll stand by that. You know, you feel free to agree or disagree, but I think, you know, what I saved the strongest argument and actually said it, which is there is nothing in, in the, the most that skeptics generally say about eyewitness reports is that eyewitness eyewitnesses um, are by nature sketchy and you can't trust anything anyone sees, which if you follow that to its ultimate point, then then all you know, anything anyone sees and tells to somebody else is, you know, is faulty. And I don't think anyone gets anywhere with that uh, viewpoint anyway. So, you know, I, if, I will say this, if anyone and our, our loyal listeners, and we thank you for everyone for listening, if you were insulted by that letter, that was not our intention to insult anyone. What it was and in our intention to do is let the skeptical viewpoint have a voice and we have to try and come to terms with that and actually listen to what the skeptical viewpoint is and i think um it was a exercise in listening for understanding rather than listening to reply so that is my response ron to your response andy my response is if Again, if I, I also apologize if a listener was offended by that. That was not our intentions. We were like, how, what should we do for a sass up this week? Oh, let's make our listeners feel bad. <laughs> but what I got out of it was, and I enjoyed it. To be honest, I don't remember listening to what we read out of that article and ever being offended by what he said. Ever. Period. I'm a fan of all those big, all the big names, John Green, the Founding Fathers. They had flaws about them. We've talked about that outside of a skeptical episode. Research groups that are, you know, we've, we also, we just are talking about this, but, you know, being out in the field, I'm sorry, but some of those groups can't be trusted. I am not going to go around trusting everything I hear from the Bigfoot community. I'm sorry. I, I trust people. It's not saying, like, I deny everything. Like, if I have a trusted source, I'm going to trust that person. But I'm not going to go around saying yes to everything in this community because, admittedly, there's some things that I'm not saying are hoax but are definitely not Bigfoot-related. And if we... I, I think I just said this, but if we say yes to everything, we're going to get so diluted with stuff that's unusual but not Bigfoot or even normal and we're blowing up that it's actually just this normal thing that we're going to be ignoring the facts. And I can't see that happen. Like, I can't stand seeing it happen. And we need to be skeptical in this field because if not, then we're just going to say yes to everything and we can't do that. Yeah, and I I will well put, and I also think that perhaps I will hold this open as well. That my day job perhaps gives me a thicker skin than other people regarding opposing viewpoints, uh, and and those who are diametrically opposed to what I believe. I'm used to letting them vent their spleen and spout off, 
and sit there and be Mr. Calm, cool, and collected. And, you know, um, I say all that not to compare that to the letter that we received. That's not my point at all. It's to say that I'm not threatened by anyone's opinion on anything, nor am I insulted by it. it it's just their opinion. And I think, as I said before, to gain understanding, we really have to listen to what people are saying. And again, not listening just to reply, but listen for understanding. And that was the intent of having the skeptical viewpoint on the show. Mm -hmm. And I will state this for the record right here. I enjoyed that article. That was a really good article. We need to listen to this side. Because if we need... We need to listen to everyone, and that's everyone. That's the skeptics, and that's the believers. That's the people who are sort of like, and in the middle. We need to listen to all of this, because if not, who do we listen to? Ooh. Our next letter is from Justin. It says, hey guys, enjoyed the skeptic episode. The listener's article was well written. I do find all the personalities and culture of Bigfootery peculiar, and it has certainly contributed to the continued popularity of Bigfoot. I know there are some dubious characters in the history of Bigfoot. However, I don't really buy the ad hominem attacks arguments the author presented. Species are discovered by science all the time that have been acknowledged by unprofessional locals. I also have a hard time believing Patterson could pull off that kind of hoax without Gimlin being in the know. And he just seems too genuine of a guy in every interview I've ever seen or heard. Ultimately, the author didn't deal with the evidence of eyewitnesses. Like you said in your conclusion, what do you do with hundreds, potentially thousands of normal people who are no doubt eyewitnesses of something? Can they all be misidentification or hoaxes or imagination? It only takes one true encounter for Bigfoot to be real. And that, again, is from Justin. And he hashtags save Boris. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, thanks. That was great. Someone, I do. There's, I enjoyed, I enjoyed it, and I'm glad someone else who seems to be, you know, I assume you're on the believer end of things, but to hear someone enjoy it from the skeptical viewpoint, that's good, and. Um, with the Bob Gimlin thing, I'm sort of, I agree, but you brought up a good point tonight, that what if he was a moneymaker that just so happened to get really lucky and actually got something? Um, and also, all the characters in the Bigfoot community is definitely, it's a peculiar thing. Peculiar. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's the downfall of the ad hominem attack approach, is that a jerk can still discover something important. You don't have to be like a moral paragon of virtue in order to do significant things in the world. I think if you are taking a realistic look at things, then you'd have to say a lot of the time it's not the moral people. It's uh, the people who are driven or who have an obsession with something that makes them want to, you know, maybe like uh, you know, push the rest of their life aside to try and figure this one thing out. And that's not necessarily moral, but nor does that exclude them from some sort of scientific or important discovery. So, uh, really good letter, and I agree, We maybe we should be concentrating our efforts on finding out about Boris and if he's okay. Yeah. 
And if he's still in that kitchen... Oh, my gosh. I hope not. He still is? Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> All right, our next letter is from Sarah. And Sarah writes, Hey, Mark and Andy, I wanted to thank you for your recent skeptic episode, which I listened to this afternoon. I've always appreciated Sasquatch for wearing its skepticism on its sleeve. In my opinion, it is the correct approach to be skeptical in all things, Bigfoot or otherwise. Anyway, you guys reminded me of an article I recently came across and thought I'd pass along. While unfortunately titled, it addresses from an opposing viewpoint many of the same issues as the article you read on the show. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thanks again and cheers, Sarah. Glad someone else enjoyed it. And <laughs> I think if we ever make... Um, I just got this idea. You can you can write us your letters on this idea. If we ever make Sasquatch t-shirts again, should we have a skeptic on one sleeve and, like, believer oh, on the other? That idea has legs. Or should I say feet? Big ones. <laughs> really oh. bad jokes on Sasquatch. Yes. That's what you come for. Well, thank you, Sarah. I'm glad. And I suspect that you are not alone in enjoying that episode and as a it really as a thought experiment i think it was very healthy for us to do as you point out and as andy pointed out too um it's good to be not just going in blind but evaluating everything that you're seeing and hearing and so you gave us a link to an article that i found absolutely fascinating for one reason especially and that is i had never heard of the the principal individual that this article profiles, and it really caught my interest, and I wanted to share at least portions of the article with you. And she, uh, Sarah, referenced an unfortunate title. The unfortunate title is Crackpot, and the subtitle is Why One Scientist Thinks Taboo Fringe Theories Are a Big, Hairy Deal. Dr. Richard Stepp grabs the orange snowshoe by one end as an airsats pointer to trace an island-hopping path from northern Europe to Greenland to North America on the overhead projector map. He brought the snowshoe to his April 19th Bigfoot lecture at the Freshwater Grange to demonstrate a point about, well, big feet. But he's taken a detour to talk about another seemingly wild idea, the theoretical journeys of pre-Columbian Vikings. The hall is packed. There are families, a few burly men with Whitman-esque beards, and one woman in a pair of thematically appropriate furry black Ugg boots. Among them are skeptics, believers, the curious, and the regulars who have come for the soup potluck. Like the Viking voyage, Steps' introduction is a long way around to Sasquatch, but he's getting there. By the time he's delineated types of hominids, shuffling stacks of books, and relating the tale of a purported Bigfoot abduction, he's right back in professor mode, the projector light rising up in his features like the glow of a campfire. It's a version of a lecture Stepp has given before to students at Humboldt State University, where he taught for 39 years in the physics department before his final retirement in 2012. He is not trying to argue the existence of Bigfoot, so much as why the possibility, along with other so-called quote-unquote crackpot theories, a label he tosses around gleefully, shouldn't be dismissed out of hand. This is the logical circle. Only crazy people talk about Bigfoot, so if you talk about Bigfoot, no matter what your background, you're crazy, he says. That, he feels, is a dangerous assumption, leading scientists to abandon their methods and turn away from empirical study out of prejudice and self-preservation. A subject that will not get funded and will endanger your career may never be studied, he says. The resulting blind spots in our collective knowledge extend beyond UFOs and yetis, 
potentially blacking out less than lucrative topics and politically unpopular conclusions. Stepp himself has given plenty of time, study, and financial support to the search for the big biped. He tells the Grange crowd, If I was a biologist, this would have been a really bad idea. But I'm a physicist, and they expect physicists to be a little weird. In fact, Stepp is willing to give consideration to a fair number of scientifically taboo subjects, noting that acupuncture was considered crackpot just a couple of decades ago. And he makes no bones about his own lack of expertise in biology and anthropology. Instead, he proudly waves books by recognized experts in those fields and invites others to read them. As much as he champions rigorous scientific study, he says science, at least our grasp of it, has limits, and there are some things we cannot measure, test, or know with certainty. In these cases, Stepp takes a rather unscientific leap of faith, going on his personal judgment and his trust in the testimony of the people he meets and knows. A more than spry 71 Stepp is always moving, shifting in his hiking boots as he talks. His cropped white hair grows in a forward squirrel, a dark weathered skin shows through a couple days worth of gray stubble. Since childhood, he has been plagued with health problems stemming from undersized kidneys. While they didn't say it outright, he got the message his parents and doctors didn't expect him to live very long. His kidneys failed him three times, once when he was 20, landing him in the hospital for two months. Whether out of a sense of carpe diem or stubbornness, he threw himself into wrestling and track and field, particularly pole vaulting. He was just over five feet three inches tall, exactly the body type that doesn't do well in track and field, he says. But he chose pole vaulting because it was difficult, dangerous, and nobody else wanted to do it. He kept pole vaulting until the age of 45, when his quadriceps tendon snapped. A pair of hip replacement surgeries later stepped no longer vaults, but still scales the climbing wall at HSU, throws the javelin at meets in his age class and volunteer coaches pole vaulting at McKinleyville High School. It continues on then to talk about how he earned his PhD in meteorology, studied atmospheric physics, particularly fluid mechanics, attempting to model the way air flows through forests for his dissertation. I was so arrogant, I didn't think I needed help from anybody, he says. He was also frustrated that the standing research he was working with seemed weak and fudged and likely funded by people who wanted to put poison gas in forests. In the end, he wasn't particularly proud of his work and wanted to leave and do something different. Teaching lower-level classes in a beautiful place sounded good, so he applied at HSU, where meteorology PhDs were in scant supply in 1973. A little bit later in the article, it says, In both lecture and conversation, Stepp is fond of saying, Science does itself no honor by overstating its power. As a meteorologist, Stepp is particularly frustrated with what he sees as politics driving the study of climate change. The change, he says, is happening, but he believes the computer models upon which many researchers base their predictions are flawed and that there are far too many variables to ascertain how shifts in temperature and air currents will behave in, say, a hundred years. Nor can we test our methods of prediction the way we can in the short term, he points out. Weather might be, he says, flexing his fingers wide in front of him, a chaotic system not predictable beyond two weeks. The perceived certainty about climate change is a concern that's also been raised by other scientists, such as computational physicist Stephen Koonin, who published an account of his doubts in the Wall Street Journal. On the other hand, Stepp says, the current model could absolutely be right, but they shouldn't be as sure as they say. In 2004, Stepp attended a conference on all things Sasquatch to celebrate the launch of the Bigfoot section 
of the China Flat Museum in Willow Creek. There, he introduced himself to Jeffrey Meldrum, professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University and an oft-interviewed Bigfoot researcher. Meldrum's area of focus is the evolution of bipedalism, the anatomical distinctions and development of our ancestors that led to our walking on two legs, including the dynamics of their footfalls, footprints, and skeletons. Stepp told Meldrum he administered a family charitable fund, and Stepp suggested he apply for research money. Meldrum, who in a phone interview says he has gotten private support over the years, but has had little success with university funding, didn't think he could get the required matching funds, but eventually put together a proposal for a standard wildlife study with motion-triggered camera traps and bait, similar to how one might study bear populations. According to Meldrum, his application to ISU's Matching Research Fund Committee was headed straight for the circular file until Ed House, a biologist and then Dean of Research, pushed reviewers to evaluate it based on the proposed methods. Meldrum got his funding, a few thousand dollars, and launched his study in the summer of 2005 by the Seattle River in the wilds of Washington. Stepp joined the team in the field for a week or so. Unfortunately, Meldrum says, the sediment choking the Seattle River that summer left few salmon to lure predators to the water, and 112-degree heat triggered camera sensors wasting film. The team found a, a washed-out 16-inch set, set of footprints that appeared bipedal, but the detail was lost. Meldrum says Step has been generous, funding other projects here and there, such as a 3D footprint scanning archive that other researchers will be able to access, and dropping the fund requirement for matching. He appreciates the history of science and the fact that paradigms and dogmas can become so entrenched that academics can become blind to anything that doesn't fit their preconceptions, Meldrum says. He's in the early stages of a project now to which Step is contributing, but says he can't talk about it yet. Meldrum does study other things, particularly relic hominids, those branches of our ancestral tree that died off tens of thousands of years ago, including Homo floriensis, the three-and-a-half-foot-tall species nicknamed the Hobbit, discovered in 2003. As far as how his Bigfoot research has affected his career overall, well, it's taken it in a very different direction, he says. Depends on what constitutes a successful career. Over the years, he's had a promotion-hindered, tenure contested, and experienced irrational, visceral reactions from people who just wanted me to blow away. He knew the late anthropologist Grover Krantz had been mocked as a Bigfoot researcher, but had chalked some of that up to Krantz being a quote-unquote quirky individual who once wore a false brow ridge for months to see what it was like. But this project has revealed an unpleasant underbelly in the scientific community, he says. I had no idea the types of vitriol that I'd experience as a result of my involvement in this subject. He says that when young, interested academics approach him, he discourages them from risking their careers pursuing Bigfoot research. Better, he says, cut their chops in a field that interests them, establish a solid reputation, and then apply their expertise to the search. Meanwhile, some serious names in the scientific community have come out in support of serious, objective research into Bigfoot famed anthropologist Jane Goodall among them. Among biologists, trackers, and wildlife specialists, Meldrum says he's had a warm welcome. Ignorance cultivates much more confidence, says Meldrum, adding, those who are informed recognize how much we don't know. While fakes are a hallmark of what Stepp calls the crackpot realm, they are not enough to dissuade him. He's quick to pounce on what he sees as holes in the story of Ray Wallace, 
whose family outed his 1958 footprint findings as a prank, saying a proper examination was never made, and Wallace himself never renounced his claims. Norstep says, does the existence of humbugs rule out a real Bigfoot? Meldrum says intentional hoaxes are rare in his experience. Mostly he winds up straightening out people who have misidentified overlapping elk footprints, which can look like rounded toes or shapes created by water erosion. And while citizen scientists are a great help in fields like ornithology, when it comes to Bigfoot, it's a mixed bag. The laminated fold-out field guide he published with an Arcata company about how to identify and record evidence has weeded out some of the wild goose chases and cut down on the amount of scat people send him. He recalls with a grim laugh when the department secretary called one day to tell him a UPS package was waiting for him and it was dripping. Despite Stepp's belief in the importance of evidence gathering, he's not optimistic about the scientific establishment's willingness to consider prints, bones, or photographs. Even if Bigfoot walked through the Arcata Plaza, pushed over the statue of McKinley, left a big pile of scat, and walked off, said Stepp, that still would not prove the existence of Bigfoot. He says that a body, or at least a body part, would go a long way, but good luck getting anyone with a reputation worth risking to look at it. You start ignoring those calls early on in your career, he says. In his estimation, it would take specimen after specimen to get any traction. Stepp himself hasn't had a Bigfoot encounter. He bases his conclusions, his belief in the creature's existence, on the work of biologists and anthropologists he studied, and on personal accounts. On that 2005 field expedition with Meldrum, Stepp says a woman on the team told him she'd awoken on a solo camping trip to see an eight-foot-tall female ape-like creature with its offspring peeking from behind it before the pair walked off in silence. My judgment of this woman is that she is solid, he says. I made that judgment as a human, not as a scientist. He's taken the same leap of faith with many, though not all of the friends and acquaintances who have told him similar stories in confidence, discerning for himself whether they seem sane, trustworthy, or susceptible to trickery. Stepp considers himself a pretty good judge, though he admits maybe not as much so with women. Still, he says, you've always got to watch out for hoaxes. Remember that the crackpot realm attracts nuts. Some theories, he says, should stay in the crackpot realm, but not many. How about ghosts? There isn't the slightest doubt that ghosts exist, he says, noting the overwhelming number of testimonials from around the world and from people he knows. However, he doubts it can be proven, since nobody knows what such entities would be composed of, so nobody knows what to look or test for. At some point, I, despite being a physical scientist, am able to put my trust in people, he says. It's not everything that you can measure with an instrument. Any physicist would admit that there are many things we don't understand, but few physicists would admit there are things we'll never understand, Stepp says. I'm allowing for the possibility of that. The only thing he'll rule out for sure is astrology, sort of. While Stepp says he can't imagine there being anything to it, he concedes that if somebody does a mathematical study of birth signs and properties of measurable human characteristics, a problematic idea in itself, well, if their results seem statistically robust, then who am I to say no? The night of the lecture, members of the Bluff Creek Project, a loose group of amateurs who planted motion sensor cameras around the famous site of the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot footage, are videotaping with plans to post the talk online. Once step is done and the applause is over, he moves into the seats for a loose Q&A session. He fields questions about why photos, DNA, or corpses haven't been produced, 
saying he thinks DNA is the next step in evidence gathering. A young man in Olive Cap suggests that Bigfoot might be the sample-gathering minion of interdimensional creatures as a young woman with twitching legs twists her braided ponytail and nods. Shouldn't everything be on the table, the man asks? Step replies, yes, but baby steps first. Nearly an hour later, the Grange members and volunteers are packing up the crockpots and wrapping the last of the cornbread and cookies, but Step is still encircled by a handful of people in folding chairs. He's down on his knees, hands splayed over his thighs, listening. And if you would be interested in actually hearing Dr. Step himself, uh, you can go right on YouTube and just look up Dr. Richard Step, S-T-E-P-P, Bigfoot Lecture 41516. That was very interesting. It's sort of the viewpoint I'd like to think I take, yet I don't think I do completely. So I I think we all need to ad- adopt, that's the word I was looking for. I was going to say adapt. That's not the real word. Adopt Step's point of view by just looking at everything, reading as much as we can. I mean, his his viewpoint on science is what the whole scientific community really needs to do, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I really enjoyed this, and I wanted to read it, because this is the most candid that I've heard uh, Dr. Meldrum talk about his own experience and sort of the personal price that he's paid for having an interest in Bigfoot and footprints in particular, but you know, I'm I am sure that he's downplaying a little bit. Um, although he does frame it, he uses the words like vitriol. That's pretty strong uh, kind of pushback that he's gotten in the academic community for entertaining this whole subject. And um, so I, I thought that it was an interesting counterpoint, just like Sarah said in her letter, to some of the ideas that were brought up in the skeptic episode, and I thought there were some really interesting shades of meaning that rise to the surface in this letter. And I like a lot where Step kind of leaves off, which is, in a way, was sort of my conclusion too, and that is, you know, science has the ability to tell us many things, especially when we know what we're testing, but ultimately the, the hook that you end up snagging yourself on with Bigfoot is the eyewitness testimony. And it all comes down to, do you believe that the people who are seeing Bigfoot are really seeing something like that? And if they are, then we still have more questions than answers. So thank you for listening. Uh, We will be on the road very soon to the International Cryptozoology Ah. Conference. (laughs) We hope to bring you back lots of cool stories about that and uh, share the experience with you, our listeners. So thank you to everyone who wrote in. It, uh, I think we accomplished the purpose that we set out to do, which is to spark an interesting conversation. And it's one that um, you know we will continue to explore together as uh, we try to figure out what this is really all about. So thanks so much once again. Um, Andy, if people would like to put in their two cents, how would they go about doing they- that? can write us an email at sasswhatshow at gmail.com. No. Yeah. Sasswhatmail. Sasswhatmail at gmail.com. Um, Sasswhatshow is our Twitter, at Sasswhatshow. And 
check us out on Facebook. So that's what is a Small Town Monsters production.